And good morning. Welcome to the Vince Coakley Radio Program. Glad to be back with you on the broadcast today. How are you doing? How are things in your world? Hope all is okay. A lot to talk about during the course of the broadcast today. Lots of very interesting news developing. One of the things that we'll talk about at the beginning of the broadcast are some positive developments, from my perspective anyway. And I want to offer a little bit of a disclaimer on this, because one of the things I've said all along, and I'm, I'm very conscious of this, more conscious than ever before, and that is the ultimate justice is divine justice. That's the ultimate justice. That's when everything is going to be made right. The measure of justice that we're going to have in this world and here and now is going to be measured. Justice is not always going to prevail. And it's not always going to be neat and pretty. It's not always going to be the way we would like it to be. That's just the reality. But I try to find those things that at least are those pleasant shadows of what ultimately will be. Because it is vitally important for us to be thankful for the things that do come together the way they're supposed to. By now, I'm sure you have heard about a big success, apparently for Israel, which, to my understanding, is still not taking responsibility for this attack that occurred in Beirut. A man by the name of Saleh Arori, the deputy political head of Hamas and a founder of the group's military wing, this guy has been on the radar screen for years. A terrorist. But yesterday, he was wiped out in a drone strike in a southern suburb of Beirut. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had threatened to kill him even before Hamas carried out that deadly surprise attack on Israel October 7th. Israel had accused Arori of masterminding attacks against it in the West Bank, where he was the group's top commander. In 2015, the U.S. Department of the Treasury designated Aurora as a specially designated global terrorist, offering $5 million for information about him. So he's been on the radar screen for the United States of America as well. Asked about assassination threats against him in an interview with Beirut. With a journalist there in August, Arori said, It is not strange for us, for the commanders and cadres of the movement, to be martyred. So he had a sense that this was always a possibility. In fact, he added, I never expected to reach this age, so I'm living on borrowed time. Isn't that interesting that he would say that? Recognizing he could be wiped out at any moment. In the same interview, he threatened that in case of a comprehensive war, Israel will suffer a defeat unprecedented in history. But again, we mention Soleil Arori killed in an explosion in the southern Beirut suburb. This is a big hit for Israel, because their goal is to take out these terrorists. What's intriguing about this, since October 7th, Arroyo has kept a low profile, while others in the Hamas political leadership made frequent public appearances in Beirut, including in near daily press conferences. I mean, think about this. Here you've engineered just massacres on a grand scale and you're having news conferences 
<laughs> just out in public view. As for Roy, he seems to have been hiding in plain sight. He was killed in a strike on an apartment building in the middle of Beirut's southern suburbs. A political and security stronghold of Hezbollah, but also a densely populated urban area. Hamas officials confirmed Roy's death along with six other Hamas members, including two military commanders. A Lebanese security official who spoke on condition of anonymity because he was not authorized to speak to the media said the attack appeared to have been carried out by a drone that fired missiles into the building, targeting one specific floor. Isn't it incredible how precise these things are? The explosion shook the surrounding area, shattering windows in neighboring buildings, causing a fire in the street. Residents rushed to the streets around the targeted building, digging through rubble and broken glass looking for survivors or bodies. Lebanon's state-run national news agency blamed an Israeli drone. Israeli officials declined to comment. Hezbollah said in a statement the targeting of Rory in the heart of the southern suburbs of Beirut constituted a serious attack on Lebanon, its people, its security, sovereignty, and resistance. We affirm this crime will never pass without response and punishment. One of the concerns that some have expressed is the possibility that this entire conflict between Israel and Hamas could expand other parties. And this is yet another flashpoint which raises that question as to whether there will be an expansion beyond what we are seeing right now. By the way, more violence reported out of the Middle East today. Two bombs exploded minutes apart at a commemoration for a prominent Iranian general slain in a U.S. drone strike in 2020. 103 people have been killed and 188 wounded. At this point, nobody's claimed responsibility for what appeared to be the deadliest militant attack to target Iran since the 1979 Islamic Revolution. The gathering, by the way, marked the fourth anniversary of the killing of General Qassam Soleimani, the head of the Revolutionary Guard's elite Quds Force, in a drone strike in Iraq, January 2020. The explosions occurred near his gravesite as long lines of people gathered for this event. The question is, who is actually behind this? And could this be another flashpoint that somehow causes the violence that we're seeing expand in the Middle East? Tehran condemning this terror attack as bodies are scattered in the streets. Back to the Vince Coakley Radio Program, 20 minutes after the hour of 10 o'clock. Coming up in a few minutes, we are going to talk about what's going on with crime here in the city of Charlotte. And we'll also address another big story the past few days. The, I guess you can say, the growing contempt for the owner of the Carolina Panthers. We'll address that much more as we continue the broadcast this morning. I want to also tell you about something that is, again, I guess you can characterize this as kind of incomplete justice. When I found out how much this Harvard professor, now former president, is making, it just blew my mind. It's crazy, absolutely crazy. As you know, Harvard University President 
Claudine Gay, the first black leader of the nation's first prestigious university, announced her resignation Tuesday afternoon in a message to the Harvard community. She stepped down after months of contending with interlocking crises over the Israel-Hamas war, campus anti-Semitism, and allegations of plagiarism in her scholarly works. I was listening to a left-leaning broadcast this morning, and my stomach was turning because this person views Ms. Gay as a victim. This woman, even though she's not going to be president, you want to take a wild guess as to how much money that she is making, Bernie? You want to take one wild guess as to how much she will continue to make, even though she's not the school's president. Mm. Six or seven figures. Can you give me that hint? <laughs> it's six. Six figures. Okay. Um, let's go 350000 How about $900,000? Oh I'm going to turn my mic off now. <laughs> Before we get in trouble. Before something comes out. See, this is what's wrong with higher education. Is you have morons like this. Yes, I said it. Who are making a boatload of money. And then we've got these people. People can't afford college. Why can't they afford college? Because you have bureaucrats like this. Who are making ridiculous amounts of money. But we move on. Harvard's provost, Dr. Alan Garber, will serve as interim president. This was supposed to be a very promising hire. Claudine Gay, 30th president, first black person, only second woman ever to hold the position. Just six months, two days later, she's resigned amid a storm of scandal. With a new superlative in hand, the shortest tenure of any president in Harvard's history. A brief term, an anomaly at the nation's oldest university where presidencies often span upwards of a decade. The previous shortest tenure as Harvard president was Cornelius Conway Felton, who took office in 1860, died of a heart condition in 1862. The longest, Charles William Eliot, leading the school from 1869 to 1909. My goodness, that's 40 years. 40 years. And you should know, and this is not surprising, so many of these folks, they will circle the wagons and they will defend her. They're going to use all the usual defenses. That they came after her because she's black. They came after her because she's a woman. No, she's a moron. This woman should not have been there in the first place. But we move on. This is kind of interesting. One person defending Ms. Gay, Ibram X. Kendi. You're probably familiar with that name. Director of Boston University's Anti-Racist Research. Condemned this exit from Harvard as the product of, a product of anti-black attacks made by a racist mob. In a series of tweets posted on X, Kendi said allegations of plagiarism by Gay were just a way to justify removing her from a leadership role. The allegations allowed racist critics to deny they were judging Gay by her race. In fact, here's Kendi's whole post. Not surprising. Racist mobs won't stop until they topple all black people from positions of power and influence who are not reinforcing the structure of racism. What these racist mobs are doing should be obvious to any reporter who cares about truth or justice as opposed to conflict and cliques. Yeah, whatever. This is ridiculous. It's garbage. Once again, the folks who are committed to the message of victimology. 
which I refuse to embrace. That's where I'm coming from anyway. Love to get your thoughts on this. 704-570-1110. Let's go out to a quick call from Ed on this. Good morning, Ed. Thanks, Vince. It turns out that in a way, the way I'm thinking about this is exactly the way you are. I was raised to believe that in the United States, if you're the best, you get promoted. And what's happened is because of all these comments about slavery and uh, true or not, uh, she's using slavery apparently for, for her job and it's hurting all blacks. When you do that, when you say I'm being fired because of, she wasn't fired, she resigned in number one. She didn't deserve a salary because uh, they found out that in some areas she actually had cheated to get her job, and then she makes these stupid comments. I don't consider her black. I don't consider her white. I, I, I was raised with black friends, with Jewish friends, with German friends, Czechoslovakians. I wasn't raised to hate anyone to race. Oh, you could, and you should, according to the Ten Commandments, and what I do is, I don't care what you are when we meet and start talking, but if you say, do you want to help me rob a bank tomorrow, I'm going to say, no, that's that's against the law, and it's against God's teachings, and we're getting away from the Ten Commandments, and, and it's sad because I have a lot of black friends that don't like what's going on using race and uh, the politicians use everybody they can use yep that's how this works and and let make no mistake about it this woman uh, at the core of it's as you've described here she is a politician that needs to be remembered Still to come in the broadcast. We will address crime issues here in the city of Charlotte, and we'll have the latest on the Carolina Panthers. Attention away from the team's horrible record to the owner again. That much more as we continue our broadcast. You may have seen the headline, Charlotte City Council member... Once a crime task force to stop the bad trajectory after the New Year's Eve shooting. You're familiar by now with that shooting that left several people injured in Uptown on New Year's Eve. Councilman Tark Vakari announced those plans on social media yesterday, telling the Charlotte Observer to plan is considered for a while bring together different people with different tools to hone in on specific public safety issues, especially among young people and repeat offenders. Key points include delving into crime stats, developing policies that can reduce recidivism. He was driven to put the plan in motion by what he described as the bad trajectory of stories that we are seeing. And he claims to have support from at least one other council member. So we brought aboard again, Tark Vakari, to discuss what he has in mind here. Uh, good morning and Happy New Year, sir. Happy New Year, buddy. Well, let's talk about what you would like to see here. And, and I, I have to admit I'm somewhat cynical with uh, so many efforts that have been employed to try to address these crime issues. And some might look at this and say, okay, another task force. What's going to be different about this that could possibly make a difference in what we're seeing on the streets? Well, luckily for you, you're talking to the other most cynical person in Charlotte (laughs) who hates bureaucracy and BS and things like that. So what I'll tell you first and foremost is I only called it a task force because that's what's going to resonate with the, the existing kind of bureaucracy. Right? In my mind, and, and in fairness, I call it a task force as well, because you and I talked about this, uh, you know, at the end of last year after the election. Like, uh, this is an important topic to me, and I know I can't do it by myself. If I could, I would have done it six years ago, right? So, so I know I need a coalition, and I need to, to, to be a community effort, particularly among 
the council, which is primarily a different party than me. So that's why I say those things, and I, and I mean them. We do have to do it. But the, the, what I really am picturing in my mind as a results-oriented kind of person is a couple people at a core level, the DA, right, the, the police chief, the city attorney, somebody from the judicial side, and someone from the General Assembly. And then we can sit down with like a scalpel, not a machete, trying to create policy to fix all this. And, you know, there's things we can take from the past of in the McCrory uh, uh, times and things like that of like that, that, that we don't need to reinvent the wheel on. And basically, I believe when we get the data, we'll find that there are two or three hundred people that are the ones repeat committing all of the the majority of the crimes that we're seeing and i think we'll also see as a hunch a a huge population of that being youth kids under the age of 18 and then what we can start to do is in a very tailored outcome specific way lean into that with that group of that those members of the action force let's just call that part and say we're going to follow it and hey the message is clear you figured out how to slip your way through this system and get back on the streets within hours. And the next time we catch you, that's all over. If you're on this most wanted list, so to speak. And I know that's speaking a little harshly, but it's the, the time for us tiptoeing around all this and thinking about feelings is over. You know, we talk about the uh, ways of addressing this in terms of incarceration. What are the things that we can do kind of backing up to prevent kids from getting into this cycle in the first place? I mean, I, I saw the story the other day, uh, just the Greensboro police officer. You probably saw this. Yeah. Uh, the two yeah. people involved here, one of them in his 20s, the person who pulled the trigger was the 18-year-old. What, what's going on here? How can we intercept this kind of behavior? Yeah, and and this is why I think the data and starting from that basis is so important. So I'm gonna uh, uh, I'm gonna hypothesize what I think we'll find, but again, uh, we can't go into this with a preconceived notion. We have to operate on the data. I think, like I said, there's going to be a huge chunk of this being youth that are these repeat offenders. There was this joyride story several weeks ago, uh, or a couple where. Well, you know, the, the four, three or four kids accounted for 84 previous homicides, or not homicides, I'm sorry, uh, offenses uh, amongst them, 14 and 15-year-olds. So I think there's going to be a small number of these folks, and I think what we'll find, and I talked to the DA about this yesterday, and he helped me understand some other angles, I think we'll find a chunk of them where the parents are asleep at the wheel. And I want to go up to Raleigh. This is where a strong Raleigh relationship, which Charlotte does not have, but I'm lucky enough to have with a lot of the leadership up there, and I want to bring to the table, is to go up there and say, hey, I, we need to put some laws on the books that really hold these parents who are asleep at the wheel accountable uh, for what their kids are doing. And it's only going to take one or two big stories for, for folks to get really scared out there of, of not caring where Bobby or Susie is uh, in, in order to, to, to help turn some of that around. But then I think we have to build from there. And there's going to. I think we've lost. The problem is. Oh, there we go. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me? We've got your back. We lost you just momentarily. Yeah, go right I, ahead. I just, the, the final thing I was just going to say there, Vince, is I, I think we have to focus on the long-term preventative aspects of this. But the problem we've experienced around here is everyone is focused on preventative and how the system has failed people and how we need to fix all that first. And they're letting everyone do whatever they want in the streets. And what I'm saying is we can do both of those at the same time, but we have to start getting serious about saying, we're not going to allow you top two or 300 people to be out there and, and just, you know, doing whatever you want while we figure out how the system has failed you. Makes enough sense to me. I want to ask one question before we go. You mentioned you have the support of another council member. Uh, can you reveal who that is? Yeah, well, in the article, in fact, I didn't even know this was going to happen, uh, but Malcolm Graham, uh, one of the ca- my council colleagues on the other side of the aisle, reached out. And, uh, and, and he actually told the observer, and he has a quote in that article of how he's, you know, cautiously optimistic about working together on this. But I, I have behind the scenes talked to, um, almost all of my council colleagues or sent them notes and keep, kept them updated. And I'm getting a lot of positive feedback because I think this is something that everyone cares about. And some people have just been uncomfortable to talk about because it's, Sometimes a difficult conversation, particularly in an urban environment with, you know, a more progressive voting base out there who doesn't want to hear tough stuff. 
I hear what you're saying. <laughs> well, by all means, Tark Vakari, keep us posted on how this goes, and uh, we hope to see some sort of movement and perhaps something that is done to curb this uh, criminal activity that's happening on the streets. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on the broadcast this morning, sir. Thank you, buddy. So we continue our broadcast, the Vince Coakley Radio Program, our phone number 704-570-1110. What do you think about this idea? A task force to address... And he's emphasizing, uh, first and foremost, the people who are in the here and now causing most of the problems. Can we get a handle on this? Love to get your thoughts. Back to the Vince Coakley Radio Program. What are your thoughts on this crime problem here in the city of Charlotte? How to address that? Dennis out of Norwood joining us. Good morning, Dennis. Yeah, good morning, Vince. Uh, listen, Vince, I, I was uh, on a school board for 12 years in a local county, and I was amazed at how inconsistent the parents were in discipline by having discipline hearings and hearing excuses from the parents. And again, these kids don't have a chance if they don't have a family that is responsible and telling them no that what you're seeing in the schools reflects now into the streets with the crimes. Yes. It's it's scary that it's almost predictable, isn't it, Dennis, to see this pathway. Um, it's very unfortunate. The question also becomes how to address this to head this kind of behavior off before it does turn into criminal activity. I very much appreciate your call this morning. We told you the other thing we're going to address in this hour, the Carolina Panthers' favorite owner, the ongoing situation there. We've been talking about this for days now. The NFL has finally taken some action, fining David Tepper following this viral video showing the team chairman throwing the contents of a cup in the direction of Jacksonville Jaguars fans. This happened on Sunday. Well, the NFL has fined Tepper $300,000. Man, that's a very expensive toss, isn't it? $300,000 in relation to his unacceptable conduct. We also have this. Benjamin Watson, former NFL tight end, commenting on the New Year's Eve clip of Tepper appearing to angrily empty the contents of that cuff. He also attended Northwestern High School in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Spent a year of his college career at Duke University. Believes his fellow Carolinians deserve better. Can you imagine if a player did this? How long would the suspension be? How large would the fine be? Hmm. From abandoning the Rock Hill Project to coaching hires and fires, he's trying every which way to bury this franchise for the foreseeable future. The Carolinas deserve better. Pretty strong words there. And if that's not enough, get a load of this. Evan Moore, Charlotte Observer. Panthers fans started a petition to remove David Tepper as the owner. More than 500 Carolina Panthers fans have signed this petition to remove Tepper as the team's owner. This uh, goes from bad to worse. So what do we make of all of this? None other than Chris McLean from the Mac and Bone Show on WFNZ. What do you think? This has gotten crazy, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I, I am scared that there's no end in sight. I, that's what I'm afraid of. Is like, is he going to Vince look in the mirror and say, "I really like the way that guy's acting. I don't really like the way that guy's meddling with football guys doing football decisions. I don't like the way that guy." is coming across, you know, in the national media. Like, I would love for all of this criticism to hit home with him and have him change himself, less impulsive, more control. But I can't sit here and tell you I firmly believe he's going to do that. It this, scares me as a Panther fan, man. This, it, you know, it's interesting to me that you bring this together on this one strand of self-awareness. Yeah. That seems to be what's missing. Yeah. It is, and it doesn't help when the NFL goes and slaps him on the wrist with just a $300,000 fine. I think it was Darren Ravel who, of the Action Network who tweeted out yesterday that if you base, like, based on his $20.6 billion uh, net worth, 
this is akin to the average American being fined a dollar and seventy-seven cents. <laughs> and it's like this isn't gonna. He probably saw that fine and started laughing. Oh, really? I got that in my wallet right here. You know what I mean? Oh, I think it's actually goodness. under the seat in the car. Like so, it's just <laughs> the change is, drawer. Yeah, this is this is not going to make him flinch at all. And something's got to make him flinch. I thought Scott Fowler wrote a great column this week uh, in the Observer about how some, we've talked about this too over the weeks. Like. Is there anybody in his life, whether it's professional or personal, that can just tell him you're not helping? Because here's the thing. I do think, Vince, I do think he's trying to help. Not the drink situation, obviously, is, is that of a toddler, right? Just losing self-control. But, like, in terms of the meddling and trying to get involved in football decisions and all those different things, I do believe he's trying to help. He's a type A personality. It's been successful beyond belief in his other line of work. I think he's one of those guys that's very everybody, – everybody can relate. They either know one or are one. That it's hard to trust other people to do it, right? It's like, yeah. oh, I can do this the best, and so much is at stake. And I just think he's got to get over that in football. He's not a football guy. So I think he means well but in that respect. But if he doesn't change it, you know, he's going to continue to do damage to this franchise. And I agree with Ben Watson, man. We've been losing way too long around here. There's some great fans around here, and I can't help feeling like we need better, man. We deserve better. And we all know what good intentions are good for. You know, not much of anything, right? Uh, And one of the questions that comes to mind here when I see the story about this petition, does something like this go anywhere? Does it have legs where it reaches a point of critical mass where people are like, you know, I think it kind of reminds me of George Shen. Remember the days of George Shen? And ultimately, the guy left. You know, so uh, could we see a repeat of that kind of thing here? As far as trying to, the petition on change.org is an attempt to let's get the NFL to take David, t- take the team away from David Tepper. That is so freaking hard to do. Even Daniel Snyder, for all the issues with that football team and all his issues, ethical issues, legal issues, they, the NFL never made him get rid of the team. They never went to a vote. It was just got to the point where he saw the writing on the wall. And I'm telling you, David Tepper is like, this This drink toss, Vince, he's like not even 1% of the way to the full Daniel Snyder. So it's just, to me, the league, you saw it with the fine. The league likes to protect their rich billionaires. You know, Roger Goodell essentially works for the 32 owners. So he's not in a hurry to come out and discipline these guys that are basically his bosses, essentially. So it's another segment of society where people that have money and power can do away, whatever the hell they want with things with no repercussions. So, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not going to bash my fellow Panther fans or trying to put the the petition together, but it just it feels like there are better things to do with your time. You know, I mean, <laughs> hey, how basically. about how about uh, bringing about world peace? That might or solving the Middle East crisis that might be more likely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do something much more attainable. All right, try to work on those things. Oh my goodness. Very, very sad. Mac of the Mac and Bone Show, WFNZ, thanks a lot for coming on the broadcast. Uh, the saga continues. It does. I, why do I have a feeling I'll be back in here numerous times talking uh, about this man? Oh, my God. <laughs> God help us all. Seriously. Someone <laughs> help Charlotte Sports and the Panthers, my Lord. Very all right. quickly. All right, Vince. <laughs> Much more as we continue the broadcast. Stay with us. And welcome to hour number two of our broadcast, the Vince Coakley Radio Program. I want you to ponder something very important. You know, by the way, I... Let me just start here. We were talking about David Tepper in the last hour, and as we were having that conversation, and we were talking about egos, we were talking about a lack of (laughs) self-awareness... I think many of you know where I'm going next. And as I was thinking this, our listener, Chris, sent this text to me. Tepper is Trump (laughs) 3.0. And you're exactly right. And unless you have some outside influence where that person's going to listen. There's, there's no change or redemption that takes place there. Zero. 
Let me tell you what is important. Rather than pandering to and kissing the rear ends of powerful people. Let me tell you about something that is a huge problem that to this day no one is doing anything substantively about. In fact, I don't hear serious conversations about addressing this. Fox Business reports the U.S. national debt has topped $34 trillion for the first time in history. $34 trillion. The national debt, which measures what U.S. owes its creditors, hit $34 trillion as of Friday afternoon. By comparison, just four decades ago, think about this, four decades ago, the national debt hovered around $907 billion. Do you see what's happened to our country? Michael Peterson, CEO of the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, which advocates for fiscal sustainability, said we're beginning a new year, but our national debt remains on the same damaging and unsustainable path. This debt level comes as Congress races to finalize critical funding bills to prevent a government shutdown. I want you to listen very carefully to this next line I'm going to share with you. One of my problems, and I'm, I'm, I'm serious about this, I think we're at a country, we're at a stage in this country where we do not have a sense of sobriety about what's going on, about the real issues that we face. There's a book my friend Josh Charles recommended that I read. In fact, I'm, I'm probably going to read it, reread it. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. We have been ensnared by an entertainment culture. And I think that's exactly what's happened partially with the whole Donald Trump thing. We have right now a national distraction. We're more concerned about personality than we are about the real issues that plague our country. This next line sends chills down my spine. The national debt is expected to nearly double in size over the next three decades. That's according to the latest findings from the Congressional Budget Office. At the end of 2022, the national debt grew to about 97% of gross domestic product. Under current law, that figure expected to skyrocket to 181% at the end of 2053, a debt burden that will far exceed any previous level. Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, said... Though our level of debt is dangerous for both our economy and our national security, America just cannot stop borrowing. We can't stop. It's like a drug. It's like alcoholism. A drug addiction. We are addicted to debt. And, of course, the idiots at the White House... Quick to blame Republicans for the astronomical rise in the federal debt. See, if you're not going to take responsibility for your part, shut the hell up. The only thing I want to hear out of this White House is, oh my goodness, we're at $34 trillion. How can we get this under control? If you're not going to say that, shut up. And go play shuffleboard. is insane that's the first thing you're going to do is blame somebody else didn't we have a president who said the buck stops here continuing on in their silly statement this is the trickle down debt 
driven overwhelmingly by repeated Republican giveaways skewed to big corporations and the wealthy. What a moron. See, this kind of thing is not going to get us anywhere. Simply tossing blame on somebody else, the president and the legislature. Those are the people who need to claim responsibility for their part in the damage that's been caused to this country. I don't want to hear a single person say, well, it's the White House. Because no, you were a contributor to passing these spending bills. Either by voting for it or by signing it. You are part of the problem. And until you recognize that you did this. And then we've got to come back to ourselves. Why do we keep voting these same morons in office who are going to keep doing the same thing over and over again? They haven't stopped. I've said this before. And I don't mind saying it again. The Republican Party, ideologically speaking, is worthless. Absolutely, positively worthless. You know, it's really sad. When talk show hosts are more trustworthy than politicians. And what I mean by that, I think to think of someone like Rush Limbaugh who is always reliably conservative. And there are members of Congress, people I can point to, friends of mine like Thomas Massey and Jeff Duncan. And Ralph Norman. That are going to reliably vote conservative. But most of the Republicans are not going to vote conservative. They're not. No matter what they're saying in their advertising that they're running in the run-up to the election. So I just want to remind you of this. This is one of the big issues that we face. We've got to get this under control. And the only way we can get it under control is to reduce the size of government. I'll also remind you, I don't think politicians in Washington will ever do it. This is going to involve the states. The states will have to take this back. And they will literally have to choke the living crap out of big government. Or it will continue to grow and grow and grow. With the support of Democrats and Republicans, the Uniparty. That's what's going on now. And unless something significant changes on a state level, that's what will keep happening. Love to get your thoughts as we continue the broadcast. Am I crazy with my concern about this debt issue? I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I I think one of the big problems here is this just, it's, it's not a sexy issue at all. It's not. People want to get on to other things that are more interesting, that are more exciting, sexy riveting and yet this is something that there's the risk of just our country going into bankruptcy could you see that happening well of course not it's not going to happen to us we're way too special (laughs) Yeah, and I think this is part of what's going on. We've got this inflated sense of our own specialness or importance. So as a result, people can just continue playing these games, talking about other things of less consequence, and until this thing blows up in someone's face, no one cares. And then the people responsible, you know, we'll all be dead. <laughs> it's, it's our children and our grandchildren who will pay the price. That's what concerns me.
So what is important? What are we thinking about? Breitbart reports, according to a poll, Biden's migration is a top problem in 2024. Immigration will be the most important political issue for Americans in 2024, except for the current war with nuclear-armed Russia. 35% cite immigration and the border wall as a top concern, an increase from 27% last year. Immigration lost the top spot to foreign policy because only 22% of Democrats describe it as a top issue. The issue of foreign policy scored higher at 38%. Isn't it interesting how events in the world can change our perspective so quickly? I mean, for a long time, people were like, no, we're not, we're not paying much attention to what's going on with foreign policy. We're concerned about dollars and cents, inflation. And these are big concerns. But all of a sudden, when you have the prospect of, say, nuclear war, well, that kind of gets people's attention. That's what's happening here. So the issue of foreign policy scored higher at 38%, just above immigration score of 35%. Because the largely nonpartisan issue is very important to both Republicans and Democrats. President Joe Biden's migration beat inflation and the economy as top issues. Inflation scored 30 percent. Economy comes in at 24. Both are worsened by Biden's policy of importing many wage-cutting, rent-spiking migrants. Among Republicans, immigration, the top issue for 55 percent, far ahead of foreign policy at 46, inflation at 41, the economy at 32. The dominant role of migration in GOP politics leaves little room for GOP legislators to make giveaway migration deals with Biden. But it's not going to stop. (laughs) Lightweights like Mitch McConnell from another giveaway. It wouldn't surprise me if he works out some sort of deal. For example, Biden's holding hostage the expected funds for the Ukraine war with Russia because he wants to get congressional funding for more migration during 2024. So far, that ploy has failed, and the establishment GOP has voted against the combined migration and Ukraine funding request. The rising public concern for foreign policy has likely been caused by Biden's support for the war against Russia, which crossed the Ukraine-Russian border in 2024 to seize Russian-populated areas in eastern Ukraine, including the Crimean Peninsula. Biden has spent more than $75 billion to stop the Russian move across Ukraine's borders. Isn't it interesting, all of this concern about Ukraine's borders. But little to no concern about ours. Very little concern. Still to come in the broadcast, we're going to talk about COVID. It's not completely gone away. I don't know about you. Have you seen more and more people wearing masks now? It's really interesting as I walk around town, go to grocery stores, hardware stores, department stores. There are more and more people who are donning the masks again. Are you one of those people? And again, I'm seeing the people riding alone in cars wearing masks. Still haven't figured that one out yet. Why are mask requirements coming back? We will talk about that coming up. Also, we're going to talk about driving. It's pretty funny. I have a good friend who <laughs> I, I consider myself, let's see, I better pick my words very carefully here. Yes, I would call myself an aggressive driver. It's really funny. A good friend of mine. I discovered is probably worse than I am. (laughs) And it's funny because it's just, there are so many provocations on the road. Do you find there are so many provocations on the road of people you just think absolutely do not know how to drive? How did they get their licenses? 
Where did they get them from? A cereal box? I mean, it's scary. Coming up, we're going to talk about driving in the Carolinas. Maybe it will provide some answers as to why we see so many issues out on the roads. I just wanted to hear the music. That's why I was taking so long to talk. Bernie. Chris, you know that's one of my favorite groups. Earth, Winds, and Fire. So, I mentioned before the break, masks are coming back. Especially notice this at the airport. As people are traveling. COVID hospitalizations, according to ABC, have risen for the seventh consecutive week. Some hospitals across the U.S. are reinstating indoor masking rules amid rising cases and hospitalizations of respiratory illnesses, including COVID-19 and influenza. Hospitals in at least six states pay attention to this. California, Illinois, Massachusetts, Washington, Wisconsin, and North Carolina have put masking guidelines in place. Over the weekend, Mass General Brigham, which is the largest health system in Massachusetts, told ABC News it issued guidelines requiring employee caregivers and those working in patient care areas to wear masks. This is something that is becoming a trend here. An epidemiologist and chief innovation officer at Boston's Children's Hospital, an ABC News contributor, said hospitals are full of patients and staff at risk of severe illness, which is why mask guidelines have been reintroduced as these cases rise. Ultimately, health systems, hospitals, places that deliver care are going to see some of the most vulnerable and at-risk individuals, many with underlying conditions. Those are especially the places where they want to protect individuals. So we have this rapid rise in respiratory illness. Those are going to be the first places to try to use measures to reduce chances of transmission, both to protect patients, those receiving care, as well as the workforce. Data from the Centers for Disease Control Prevention showing 31 states plus Washington, D.C. experiencing high or very high levels a respiratory illness activity described as people visiting their primary care office or the emergency department with respiratory complaints like fever, sore throat, or cough. I'm curious about you. Are you wearing a mask again? I'd love to hear from re-maskers. Perhaps you've put those things away. It's kind of interesting. I came to place once the mask mandates, especially for travel, which affected me most. Uh, once those went away, those masks have been in my drawer and they've stayed there. I've, you know, to my knowledge, I don't have any intention to bring those out unless mandates are put in place somewhere. And I would say, God forbid. And as for the vaccines or shots, more accurately, how many of you are still on the trail of getting those booster shots? I know a number of you within this audience have said enough is enough. Even those of you who have gotten the shots, you've decided two, three, that's enough. And there will be no more. So... Be very curious to get your perspective on this. Here is an issue near and dear to my heart. Driving. (laughs) WCNC reports on this study. Carolina's home to some of the worst drivers in the U.S. Shocking, isn't it? Experts with Lending Tree examined data from across the country to make their list. Lending Tree's analysis looks for states with the most driving incidents. Researchers consider the number of DUIs and incidents related to speeding 
and added in citations. How do you think the Carolinas came out in this? It's not a pretty picture. North Carolina came in at number five. South Carolina, not far beyond, at number eight. (laughs) Researchers say the room for error depends on how much, how each state pulls data. That's whether states only consider incidents on record or the total amount of quotes in a state's that are then divided in percentages based on each category. North Carolina score heavily impacted by its DUI rate. The Tar Heel State is one of the only states with a DUI rate higher than three per 1,000 drivers. Boy, that's not good. And you don't have to look very far to see the driving issues. It just blows my mind. I'm serious. I wonder some people, how some people got a driver's license. It's just absolutely scary. Does this figure surprise any of you in terms of bad driving? Number five for North Carolina, number eight for South Carolina. I would have thought those would have been flipped. Okay, don't come after me. I'm just stating facts. That much of the time when I am driving, well, maybe I should leave that alone. (laughs) Bernie's over there. (laughs) Go ahead with your commentary. What were you going to say, Bernie? Nothing, Don't don't be shy. Nothing. It's all good. (laughs) All good. Oh, my goodness. I'm very surprised nobody's called in to talk about driving, Bernie. This is pretty amazing. Somewhat stunning. A little bit earlier, we were talking about the political landscape and the fact that we have a White House which is not taking responsibility for anything when they need to at least assume part of the responsibility for the spending, the debt, inflation, And, you know, one of the things that's really unfortunate is we're going to see a continuation of abdication of responsibility. Associated Press reports President Biden starting the campaign year by evoking the Revolutionary War to mark the third anniversary of the deadly insurrection of the U.S. Capitol and visiting the South Carolina church where a white gunman massacred black parishioners. Seeking to present in the starkest possible terms an election, he argues, could determine the fate of American democracy. I'm just going to say it because I think it needs to be said. This is cheap. And it's just a very, very disgusting, cynical manipulation of people. Look at what he's doing. Beating the dead horse on this so-called insurrection. And going to South Carolina church. Where a white gunman massacred black parishioners. This is purely political. 100%. This guy doesn't give a rat's ass about anybody. He doesn't. You know, it's really sad. Especially this visiting this church. Do you know this is one of the things he claimed inspired him to run for office? And one of the reasons is he is milking this issue because he thinks this is something that's going to resonate with a lot of people. I, I'm serious. I still hope neither one of these old cranks is on the ballot for 2024. I'm just sick of the antics of both of them. It's time for some youth, some vitality, some energy, and some people who are more self-aware in a healthy way. That's what we need. Let's go out to a call from Billy in Rock Hill. Good morning, Billy. 
Hey, I wasn't going to call, but since you said nobody's calling, I, I have to. But uh, I could talk all day about it. My girlfriend totaled my truck, so I can't drive recently. Oh, no. Yeah, so I ride with people you're talking about, and I don't see how they make it. I say the same <laughs> thing as you're saying. How did they get a driver's license? How are you alive? You know? <laughs> I mean, no, just merging into traffic without looking. There's a car there. You know, if it's lucky, I'm with them, you know? Oh, <laughs> uh, it's unbelievable. You know those signs that let you know a stop sign is coming ahead sometimes, you know? Yes. I know a guy that stops at those. I'm no. Like, yes, I don't see how these people make it. I really don't. <laughs> and he drives, he drives to Charlotte every day from Rock Hill. And he wanted to be a delivery driver. I said, you are going to be the worst delivery driver oh, ever. no, no, no. And everybody's on their phones. I think that's half the problem. Oh, uh, that's... Oh, that's one of my pet peeves. Technology. When you when there's you see people, in a car. you how many times you've been behind somebody at a light and the light changes to green and the person doesn't move, and oh, you yeah. you get around them and realize they're on the phone texting. I mean, so slow too. I mean, I how many times have you wished you've had rubber bumpers on your car so you can oh, just God, slam yeah. the crap out of the person in front of you? Get on the move. Yeah. And people use their turn signals like as they're made right at the turn. No, it's supposed oh. to be before that to let people know you're turning. Come on. Then people would have an idea of what you're doing. Imagine yeah. that, Billy. <laughs> I could fuss about it all day long. I'll bet That's you okay. could. Thanks very much for your call, Billy. Appreciate <laughs> I try to have a sense of humor about this. No, it's really funny. that I, This friend of mine that I mentioned, it's so funny to just sit back and watch drive because uh, I thought I was bad. <laughs> it's really hysterical. Let's go out to Kirk. Good morning, Kirk. Hey, good morning, Vince. Yeah, we've actually spoken about this before. I, I drive a tractor trailer now instead of teaching. But, uh, yeah, the thing that irritates me, what that guy says is right on, but the uh, People that don't know how to merge at highway speeds. Oh, my Slow as crap. Gosh. I got to break it down, and then they stomp on it once they get in front of me. I'm like, what the hell? Oh, my goodness. You know what I do? Sometimes I'll zip right around these people. I will. Well, getting on the interstate. If you're, if, yeah, you're going, I, if you're going 35 miles an hour getting on the interstate, I am going around you. I don't care if I'm on a white line. I am not going to drift out onto an interstate with people going 70 miles an hour behind somebody going 35. What is wrong with you people? people? I know. I've literally seen people stomp on the brakes right at the end of the (laughs) autograph. I didn't move over for them. Hey, you either figure it out or you get off the highway. (laughs) Oh, and thanks for Boomer. I'm on my way back to the gypsum plant at Mount Holland. I was going to take 485 out of Concord, but since he said that 485 outer is jacked up around Statesville Road, I think I might uh, go another way. <laughs> uh, so, probably yeah. a good idea. Excellent well, idea. I, yep. Very that's much. A, the, well, be ca- that's why I call him the notorious BBC. He is the man with traffic. Excellent. Excellent. Well, very much appreciate your call there, Kurt. Uh, as I said, I try to have a sense of humor about this. Otherwise, I'd go crazy. Let's take a look at the day in history. This general defeated the Brits at Princeton, New Jersey. Led by General Cornwallis, who was this famous general? 1777 was the year. This, you are absolutely All correct. Right. It's George. 1861, my former home state rejected a proposal to join the Confederate States in 1861. It ended up becoming the first state, by the way. This, Used to live there years ago. It's one of the most backward states in the country. Is this Kentucky or Ohio? No, this is Delaware. Del- oh, that's right, Delaware. Delaware. Sorry, Kentucky and Ohio. I didn't mean to. You said I... backwards, and then I said Kentucky. <laughs> I didn't mean that. It's like that. not my intention. <laughs> not my intention. I know. I have friends from both states, so. I, I know you. Yeah. I can vouch for Bernie at this. <laughs> 1870, construction begins on the Brooklyn Bridge. They finished that in 1873. Three-year project. Pretty good. 1924, King Tut's sarcophagus discovered near Luxor in Egypt. 1957, Hamilton Watch Company introduced the electric watch. That was a big deal. Wow. 1959... This is state number 49 admitted to the Union. 
What was it? It's cold there. Is this Alaska? Yes. All right. 1977, this company incorporated. Um, I learned how to uh, do desktop publishing on this device. Uh, they almost went under, but now they're big. What's this company? They make, they make watches. They make phones. They make computers. Uh, they're the ones. They're the monsters in the room. Is they this make, Microsoft? This is Apple. Apple. Oh, wow. Okay. They incorporated right. in 1977. Oh, wow. Can you believe that? That's they're a, that new a company. That's crazy. And they've pretty much taken over everything. Speaking of phones, 1996... StarTech, you remember those? They went on sale. What were they known for? They introduced the first phone of this type. A lot of older people still like these. The flip phone? It's e- yes. <laughs> They're easy to hang up, right? Just yep. close it up and it's done. 1996 was the year for that. And 2000, I can't believe it's been 24 years now. The last cartoon of this type appeared. This is the one with um, a famous dog named Snoopy. Oh, Charlie Brown. Peanuts. Peanuts. Oh, yeah. Peanuts. Sorry. Peanuts, Sorry, peanuts cartoon peanuts. came to an end in the year 2000. Boy, I'm getting old. What is it? What is the deal? That's how I feel. Yeah, and <laughs> you're younger than I am. Go figure. <laughs> Well, that's all the time we have for the broadcast. We very much thank you for joining us. Have yourselves a great day. Be safe out there, and God bless you. Adios.